0: Welcome to another episode of IBSC Exploring Boys' Education, a regular podcast in which we engage with the ideas that are shaping the landscape of boys' education. I'm Bruce Collins, IBSC Director of Member Engagement, and it's a real privilege to be your host. In this, our 2019 Highlights Reel, we look back on the first six months of the IBSC Exploring Boys' Education podcast and focus on some of the highlights of the conversations we've been able to have with experts from around the world. In our pilot episode, Sherry Rusher, Dean of Students at St. Albans School in Washington, D.C. and IBSC board member, interviewed Dr. Adam Cox. Amongst other things, Cox highlighted the need for school leaders to continue the good work of changing the narrative often associated with boys' schools. There, there are times
1: uh, in the life of groups and organizations where it might be appropriate to think of uh, a paradigm shift taking place. And I think that some of that is happening right now and it it may be in response to some more kind of popular ideas about what uh, boy schools or even boyhood represents, and uh, the need to, or you know, grapple with some of those myths and and present uh, in some cases an alternative narrative about what it is that boy schools are actually accomplishing and and what's taking place in boyhood as well. So, um, it, in my view, uh, Sherry, one of the main things is to is to help people understand that what is happening in boys' schools is not this more kind of regressive idea that we sometimes hear about, which is like kind of like what I would call a bubble culture, that uh, boys are living inside this bubble and that they're encouraged to stay inside this bubble, because I don't think that's in fact what is going on. I think Mm that something very different is going on, but we need to demonstrate that.
0: Adam Cox went on to share his insights about shaping boys who are good citizens and have a broader understanding of masculinity.
1: I think that the path to all of those things is is the path through authenticity. Because if we try to teach these kinds of moral values without uh, giving boys an opportunity to discover you know, their own authentic voice and uh, to be free in, in their thinking and to express their ideas, then we're putting the cart before the horse. It's just not going to work. So, and they know that they, they always have a sense when there's something that is being kind of, you know, applied to them without their permission or without a sense that they have some role, some voice in how it's going to take shape. And so, if we, if we find a way to give boys a chance to be more authentic in their, their personal expression and their ideas and setting their priorities, all of those other things will come in line in a much more natural way. In the conversations that, that I've had with boys and doing focus groups at boys' schools, I find that they do have an appreciation that masculinity is a multi-dimensional concept and there are many faces of masculinity. There are many ways to be masculine. I don't think that boys are lacking an understanding or an appreciation of that, but mm-hmm. I do think that they enjoy conversation and uh, you know, discussion that brings that forward. I mean, even if you know those kinds of things in the back of your mind, it is immensely helpful to have them reinforced through public dialogue and discussion. And I think much of that goes on. I think teachers are good at articulating that. And I think that they encourage discussion around those kinds of things. I, I, you know, the, the, the transgressions that boys make are sometimes, you know, uh very powerful when they get conveyed by media. And and I, I think unfortunately sometimes, you know, there there's a sense that, you know, if if you think you know what's going on in a boys' school, you pay attention to just those examples of behavior mm-hmm. that reinforce what your belief is rather than the whole of what's going on. And mm-hmm. so my my strong belief is that those transgressions that do occur are not caused by boys' schools, but in fact, boys' schools are the answer to that problem. They, mm-hmm. they are the appropriate response to that problem because I agree with what you said earlier that there is encouragement about how to be vulnerable, how to be, uh, you know, vulnerable in a variety of ways within schools, and I think boys appreciate that. And I think that you know the the culture of the boys' school helps them to kind of grapple with that and how it might be manifest in their own life. It has many different kinds of you know, uh, many different kinds of forms, but there is nothing so powerful at making that real and bringing it to the forefront as it's discussion in everyday life. So it can't be limited to, you know, a slogan or a motto on the wall. It has to be something that is lived in the context of discussion. And that doesn't have to be just discussion about you know, personal development, although those kinds of discussions are surely extremely helpful. It has to be also manifest in the discussion of literature and history and all other kinds of content that takes place in a school so that boys can understand that this, this has deep roots. Access our pilot episode to
0: hear this conversation in its entirety. The IBSC annual conference in Montreal, hosted by Selwyn House School, was a wonderful opportunity for IBSC members to reconnect, to learn and grow together. IBSC Exploring Boys Education had the opportunity at this event to dive deep into issues pertaining to the wellness of our boys and faculty with Hal Hannaford, Dr. Sonia Lupien and Dr. Ned Hallowell. Topics in this episode range from school culture to stress in children and teenagers to supporting boys who face real challenges. We started by speaking with Hal Henneford.
2: I'll argue that a heart is everything, right, in, in, in that if we focus more of our educational value on what we're doing on developing the heart, we're probably going to actually develop the mind way better. And I think many times we focus on the mind as the priority. Yeah. So the whole point is to say, yeah, we want great minds. And, and, and big hearts, but at the core of it, you know that hard work, uh, w- what is a great man? What is a nice guy? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean to really have a good heart? And, yeah. and you know that doesn't mean you're void of mistakes and issues and, exactly. and boys will get into as much trouble with a big heart yeah. as they will with no heart. They're fully capable. But how do oh, they
0: respond to those things? I mean, I think that's the key, isn't
2: but, it? So well, you, you know, as I say all along, what, what you want boys to change their behavior. Yeah. They're they're going to change their behavior when they experience compassion, kindness, empathy, love, and forgiveness. Yeah. And then they will change. If they just yeah. experience punishment or hardcore Nothing ever changes. Yeah. They change through those things. So we're, if, if we can model that, or as I say, we judge a community by the ability of everyone in the community to look after each other. Yeah. That's how we deal with health yeah. issues, quite frankly.
0: And, and it's about creating safe spaces, isn't
2: it? It's that old adage. I mean, I'll, I'll really believe that a boys' school is good for boy, good for for better for boys, it's better for any boy. Yeah. And I think we've done so much in the last quarter century to, to make sure that boys' schools can be welcoming yeah. places for any boy, no matter what the interest. And the safe safe place element is crucial because I actually believe that boys are much better at giving help than they are for asking for help. It's interesting, for for 20 years I taught, was one of the founders of the Canadian Accredited Independent Schools Leadership Institute, and I always taught the faculty culture module for aspiring heads. And in that faculty culture, one of the rules I I profess is the 30% rule. And the 30% rule is indicating that in any given one period of time on your faculty, 30% of that group is going to be going through some very difficult yeah. time in their life. Always 30%. It changes. You're going to be part of that 30%. It may be very serious. You can yeah. imagine the issues. So one is identifying that. Secondly is that boys model. They emulate. Yeah. So if the best way to have our boys be looking after each other and caring is to see a faculty and a staff that do the same thing, that up. look after each other. So make it a priority. I mean, yeah. you're doing, seeing stuff like now. Where, uh, uh, I know um, uh, many people are, are getting into the concept of mental illness first aid courses. Yeah. It's a big thing. We're doing a, a program like that at school this August for about 30 of our faculty. And, and again, sometimes I struggle with the separation of it. We should be just talking about health, but it's mm. important. So we're bringing it to the surface. But the priority has got to be with your faculty first yeah. and your staff, and then they will pass it on and boys are as i said boys are great emulators they they just want to see and they and you know they they pick up everything and if they see that that's the culture where where we are looking after one another and embracing it and being open dialogue about our faculty members who are away for 3 months because they're suffering from massive depression yeah. or doing something or or a life changing event that 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 we're okay, we're treating that the same as cancer, for goodness sakes, yes. that somebody is, is, is in there, we're looking after, we're supporting, when they come back, they're all back, we're yes. joyous, welcome back to see them, it's, yes. it's, it's like an amazing thing.
0: Sonia Lupien spoke to us about stress and its impact on boys.
3: The things to understand uh, is that there are four characteristics of a situation that will induce a stress response, you don't have to have all four to have a stress response, so the situation has to be novel, unpredictable, it must be threatening to your ego, and you must have the feeling you don't have control over the situation. Mm-hmm. And because of all these four characteristics, we now know that any social interaction has the potential to lead to a stress response. Now, as you say, the kids now spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in schools, and so they are surrounded by all of these social interactions, you know, with their peers, where you're gonna have social hierarchies kicking yeah. in with their teachers, etc. So I think that the, the, the quality of these social interaction, meaningful relationships. Uh, there will always be adversity. There will always be social hierarchy. You will always have children who are not picked up, you know, in the yeah. sports uh, team, etc. But other places where they can come down and, and be with uh, others in meaningful relationships could take out the stress response that just happened, you know, in a corridor or something, so they need place where they can rest. As I always say, they are everyone has a talent. Mm. And sometimes in schools or in any other environment, you know, uh, we put uh, on a pedestal yeah. some types of talents and not others, which has other kids being left out, so everyone has a talent. And yeah. if every child could, you know, push this talent, whatever the situation, whatever the environment, yeah, that's, that's, there would be less stress.
0: Yeah, so creating, creating platforms for everyone, yes. celebrating a wide array yes. of success yep. and what it means to be successful. Exactly.
3: I, uh, I love talking to teachers about the stress response because the notion that I really want to put into their mind is the notion of energy mobilization. Mm-hmm. So when you have a stress response, this stress response helps you fight or get away from a threat, right? And in order to fight or to get away, you need one thing, you need energy. So your body will help you mobilize energy. And for you listening to, this webcast, the notion of mobilis- mobilization of energy means if I was putting a 200 pounds uh, weight uh, on the ground and asking you to lift it, the, 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 what you would do, you would mobilize the energy to lift the 200 pounds, and this is a stress response. Now, once you let go of the 200 pounds, you will not start, you know, singing, you are going to shout, you are going to jump, you are going, so this is exactly that. Each time energy is mobilized for a stress response, the energy has to go somewhere after the stress response. So you're gonna see a lot of agitated behavior, you're gonna see crying, you're gonna see shouting, and this response will be different in different children. So if you look for the same response in everywhere in everyone, you're going to miss a lot of information right there. So anything that is related to energy mobilization, you will see it.
0: Ned Halliwell highlighted the importance of acknowledging the uniqueness of every single boy we teach. The
4: conditions I specialize in, both ADHD and dyslexia, uh, at their core uh, uh, are gifts if if you uh, deal with them properly. Uh, they're... they're Designated as disabilities, then they certainly do have a downside to them. But if you if you manage them properly, the the positive side of them far outweighs the negative side of them.
0: What are those things we need to be aware of and notice in in the children we teach?
4: Well, just anybody who's not uh, fulfilling their potential, anybody who's underachieving, and you and you wonder why. Hmm. Anyone who's under who's unhappy, and you wonder why. Wherever you see conflict and you don't understand it, whenever you have a question about a child, uh, talk to someone else—another teacher, a parent, a consultant. You know, just as my old saying goes, "Never worry alone." You know, bring your worry to someone else. The fact of the matter is, uh, some of the most accomplished people in the world have these so-called learning disabilities. So, so. uh, just inform parents that there's nothing to be ashamed of. We just need to unwrap the gift, promote the positive, and, and the, the the good side will emerge. Once you feel connected, once you feel safe, um, learning picks up exponentially. My old friend Priscilla Vale, who's now in heaven, she used to say emotion is the on-off switch for learning. And you know, once you get fear and anxiety out of the way, learning takes off. Yeah. But if fear and anxiety are in the way, uh, learning grinds to a halt. Yeah. So one of the teacher's main jobs is to create a, a safe classroom where it's, it's okay to fail, where it's okay to make mistakes.
0: For more, check out episode one on our past episodes on the IBSC website or search for Exploring Boys' Education on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The IBSC member experience culminates each year at the IBSC Annual Conference. If you haven't yet registered for the 2020 IBSC Annual Conference, do so now. It's in Barcelona and promises to be another superb opportunity for learning and connection. A highlight of IBSC membership is the access members have to boy-focused research in IBSC Member Centre. Two of our recent podcast episodes focused on research in boys' schools. The first of these highlighted the work of the IBSC Action Research Programme, and the next focused on the work of the IBSC Research Committee. We also gained insights into the establishment of cultures of research and innovation in boys' schools worldwide. The Action Research Programme is one of IBSC's premier professional development opportunities for teachers and leaders in boys' schools. What follows are some highlights from my conversation with the Action Research team leaders.
5: After my Action Research project, lots and lots of doors opened, I was able to speak at conferences, um, head overseas to do some presentations, but I think what was really lacking was some sort of uh, credibility to put behind those presentations and, and articles. So I could see the value of research, it really, the action research really sort of gave me a spark I guess that needed feeding. Uh, so I decided to enrol in a, a doctoral program and so nine years later uh, in 2018 I finally graduated with a, a degree as Doctor of Education. Uh, but the, the topic I chose Um, for my doctorate, uh, sort of reflected what i had done in my action research program. So so the topic itself had sort of been a spark as well. We've had 15 cohorts go through the program and they've comprised 40 teams. Uh, Those teams have had researchers from over 12 countries and uh, to date we've had something like 420 researchers uh, graduate. It's a program that's run by Teachers for Teachers but I think it's It's all about the professional learning, and there's learning on so many levels in the program. We have a a global collaboration, and being part of an online community in itself is a very rich experience. But with that comes a a global confidence, um, looking at schools around the world and realizing that while we're all different, we've all got so much in common. There's technological research, as people learn the new technologies that we use to communicate, There's research knowledge of the actual topic that people are working with, but I think more important than all of that is it's the relationships that are formed in this program um, that lie at the heart of its success. And those relationships are between the team advisors themselves, um, between the team advisors and their researchers, and then the researchers form such close
6: bonds through the course of the 18 months that they they spend working together. You definitely get out of it what you put into it, and... um, I mean, I really did embrace it. I enjoyed it so much. I found it. I hadn't really done any research before, and I just found it so fascinating. I enjoyed the reading. Um, I didn't enjoy writing the lit review very much, but it, <laughs> 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 we all know. <yeah. laughs> but I, I really enjoyed doing all the reading for it, and it, it invigorated for me. It invigorated my teaching enormously, but also. Just being able to see the, the, the boys kind of in how it enhanced yeah. the learning.
7: I think as educators we're all reflective, but to learn how to, you know, immerse yourself in the literature when you want to try something new, um, how to collect evidence, and you know get the boys voices as we are trying new things, I think it just changes and so many um, teachers have gone on to maybe do informal new cycles of research, it just changes the way we teach but then of course that affects the boys because it's why do we do this, Mm. we're learning best practices for teaching boys. We really work on directing our researchers to find that elusive piece that really ties to the boys so that we can enhance what we're doing with our boys. So, uh, you know, it really does have a really beautiful trickle-down effect in terms of what the benefits are. One that really struck with me is when you need to rely on the boys to be part and be co-researchers with you, that relational moment with the boys is very profound. And when you say to them you're part of a global research project and what you say matters, it changes how you interact with the boys and they believe in you and they trust you. Incoming researchers can expect to receive, well, two full days of training where we go over various components of action research and we guide researchers in how to shape their work. Over the course of two days, we work on how to develop good research questions because that really anchors the work ahead. Uh, We examine existing literature or even teach, you know, discuss how to um, examine existing literature, develop methods of data collection, and how we then go about analyzing that. Um, There is a bit of overlap during the training days between incoming and outgoing teams, and that allows researchers who are just beginning their journey to glean from the experience of those who have just come through it, and that can also be a really powerful experience for researchers. Uh, And then the role of us as advisors, um, I mean, we're, we're not here for two days and then we, we say, see you later. Good luck. You know, we, um, we're with you every step of the way. We check in with our teams. We certainly reach out ahead of due dates. We structure the due dates so that we, we hope it's a, a manageable stream of work for, for our researchers. And we help troubleshoot. We help to
5: encourage, to cheerlead, to advocate where necessary. We're with you. If you read the literature, often there's a certain suspicion about research conducted by teachers. It's viewed on uh, maybe as a sort of lesser, um, lesser credibility than some of the academic research that you see. Uh, so I think it is really important that the IBSC present um, its research as, as very rigorous, uh, trustworthy, etc. Uh, after all, we're hoping that other, t- other people will take on the idea of doing research. We'd like to think that there's a transferability element to the, the projects that the researchers do and if that's going to be the case then it has to be yeah. established that those projects are rigorous so look I think the the way that we achieve that is that we um, certainly as Janet's already said we provide them with some really rigorous face-to-face training where we go through the steps of the action research process um, but also and, and the ongoing support you know there's always someone available to help with questions etc but the other thing I, I think is that the the report that the researchers produce is actually sort of a, a mini-thesis in a way, so it actually replicates um, a lot of academic research that, that you'll read. You know, it has a literature review, uh, it ha- you know, it, it's very transparent in, in the process that's presented.
0: The IBSC Research Committee is also full of passionate educators who not only facilitate research and innovation in their own schools, but they want other schools to learn from their experience too. Caitlin Monday from the Scots College in Sydney, Australia, asked some of these IBSC colleagues from around the world to share their research experience in boys' schools with us.
8: Albert Einstein once quipped, we cannot solve a problem by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created it. Research and innovation matter now more than ever. They matter because as we look at our boys, teachers, schools, educational systems and society more broadly, we see complex challenges everywhere. And these challenges won't be solved by doing things the way they've always been done. That's why we need to deepen a culture of research, innovation and hard thinking in schools. We want to more effectively understand and engage boys by asking and answering the right questions. We want to build the competence and passion of teachers and raise the profile of teaching as a scholarly vocation. We want to make better decisions about resources and planning from the micro level of the individual classroom to the macro level of public policy. It's an exciting moment in boys' schools to be thinking hard about the future of education. And through the leadership of the IBSC Research Committee and the energy of research engagement in schools around the world, we're seeing new and better ways of bringing out the best in boys and reinventing an education worth having into the future.
9: I think schools are increasingly recognising that the world is getting more complex, the demands on schools are are changing, and that while we've had a, a fairly conservative model of a school, we're recognising that we need to be setting visions and strategies and we need to be thinking about which directions and which choices we make in terms of our resources, in terms of the people we engage, in the life of the school and, and the types of programs that we hope to um, engage the boys with. So a lot of the, the focus for us around research is that we, we often, as schools, are subjected to research that is done um, to us or it's done by others about us. and um, But we're really concerned, I think, about research that's done in the school or by the school so that it's very relevant to practice. Because ultimately, uh, the realization of any vision of a school will only take place if the teachers and the staff in the school drive that vision and are aligned with that vision. And I think research helps us to better understand what we're doing, um, help us to make better choices, and and to give us confidence in in terms of our professional development and professional
10: growth. We also know is it's not as though there's not research out there, um, but rather the issue is getting the research findings in the hands of people who can make the changes, so making the research findings accessible um, and then helping our teachers access those such that they do change practice. Um, A third challenge is that often research work is on top of everything else that's going on in schools. So schools are busy places, educators are very, very busy people. And so research in order to really change culture needs to be core to the mission of the school and core to the daily business. I think if we have
11: a kind of a richer and broader perspective on what we're trying to do in education, if if we sort of turn the dial back to Why why were our schools started? What was their purpose and mission? Um, Have have we lost in the bureaucratization of education something of the the way in which schools aren't just the kind of passive recipients of expert knowledge produced out there in the real world, quote unquote, but actually part of the conversation about what it means to live a good life and how to form human beings, um, and at the same time, kind of look with more vision forwards at the kind of challenges coming down the pipeline towards schools and think about how do we really help teachers to um, have the the skills yes but also the sense of uh, vocation um, the expertise around connecting across the borders between schools universities and the world of work such that they can they can really think critically about the project of education so i think expertise looks like being able to look back with um, with wisdom and look forward with the kind of vision that um, that we need for the future
1: Um,
0: I think where we are now is
12: on moving towards,
0: um, while continuing to embed
13: research, having the voices of boys, publishing research journals and so on, we're moving to the next stage, which is also engaging our local communities of schools in the value of evidence-based practice
0: and research. Um, it's very interesting, we're starting up a local partnership
13: of uh, nine schools, um, seven state-maintained schools, two independent schools, and one of the very first things that that group put on the table that they want the group to look at is indeed research, and certainly we're looking at the IBSC model of action research for inspiration in ways to do that.
0: So the Tony Little Centre is not just a hub inside Eton, it's also becoming a hub outside Eton. <clears throat> and that's becoming particularly important as well as we move to a culture where we are demanding um, really valid and powerful impact assessment of the different things we do.
14: I think one of the the, the great opportunities that schools have to participate within the Boys' Schools Coalition is, is to learn from one another and we have been actively um, watching and listening and observing um, great schools around the world establish Uh, places of inquiry um, and research centers so as to support staff and teachers in thinking about how best to educate their boys. And as we went around the world, it was clear to us that uh, we wanted to do something similar. And so uh, schools like Scott's College in Sydney and and St. Christopher's in Richmond and Eton College in the United Kingdom were gracious enough to allow us to come into their school show us around and uh, invite us into the journey that they've been on and so we were really inspired by what we saw,
12: uh,
14: how we saw the work uh, being produced and we we wanted to try our hand at doing something similar.
5: It's been really exciting for us to have the opportunity to afford our teachers and our thoughts, uh, the ability to do what schools do for our students, which is think about learning and how we learn and how we can engage in that process and to be able to learn from our international colleagues And the heart of what a research center is, examining our practice to support boys and their learning, was incredibly exciting to us. And it it was very clear um, when we were able to visit the other schools, how these research centers are informing the practice and also the ability to have a research culture at a school, which probes amazing questions, which is really what learning is all
2: about.
0: For more insights into research initiatives in IBSC member schools, Access both Episode 2 and Episode 4 of the IBSC Exploring Boys Education podcast. Another marvelous professional development opportunity for teachers in boys' schools is IBSC Online Learning. Three to four times a year, IBSC offers scheduled online courses which are designed to challenge and shape teachers of boys. Presented by seasoned experts in boys' education, in partnership with our friends at One Schoolhouse, our online learning classes are becoming increasingly popular. We are constantly evolving this offering and new classes and formats of online opportunities will be released soon. You can listen to episode 3 of IBSC Exploring Boys' Education for the finer details of each course. But one schoolhouse CEO, Brad Rathgeber's reflection on our facilitators and courses, struck us as insightful.
12: These folks are tremendous. Joe and Shimmy and Charles and Brad, they're really expert teachers, expert boys' school educators, uh, and become mentors in these classes. Joe and Shimmy and Charles and Brad just act as wonderful mentors for the topics that they teach. They help people wrestle with and think through ideas. They challenge them appropriately in their thinking, and they support them. Bruce, we know that there are, there are advantages that the face-to-face classroom has over the online classroom. Um, you're able to react in real time. You're able to have that kind of back and forth that we all love and cherish in our, in our face-to-face classes. There's an advantage though that the online classroom has over the face-to-face classroom, and that is that the online classroom is significantly more reflective. We find that introverts find their voices tremendously in online classes, whereas they're hesitant and reticent in the face-to-face class. Um, This is true for adults. Uh, When you give them a chance to sit back, think about it, and engage when they're ready to, uh, really amazing things can happen. The Boys' School community is a special community, uh, it shares tremendously amongst each other uh, and uh, is very open in thinking about best practice and, uh, and further growth of, of schools.
0: Be sure to check out our website for more on the online classes we offer. The next set of classes kicks off in February 2020 and you can sign up for these now. We are also offering classes in April and May 2020, particularly for our Southern Hemisphere schools. More recently on this podcast, we were privileged enough to catch up with three experts who understand the impact that Internet connectivity and social media have on boys. Shimmy Kang, Laura Tierney and Emma Sadlier all share rich food for thought in my conversations with them.
15: So one hour of Instagram can actually be toxic tech, um, which is really um, uh, unhealthy um, if what you're doing on Instagram is comparing your life to other people. Um, so young people love to compare and it's we're very social beings, and the teenage brain in particular is driven towards peer admiration. So if you're spending one hour on Instagram and you're looking at people's lives and their vacations and their awards um, or the parties they go to, and you're comparing and you're feeling left out or not good enough, you're going to release cortisol. And all of a sudden, that one hour of Instagram is toxic because cortisol erodes our immune system and impacts our health and leads to depression and anxiety. Okay, so that's one hour of toxic tech. Um, on the opposite end, if you're spending one hour of Instagram and you're reading inspirational quotes from people that you really admire or you're looking up creative um, activities that really um, excite you and, and are part of your passion, um, some kind of art or, or let's say creation of some video, that one hour is actually going to release serotonin. Serotonin um, and good neurochemicals, these lift us up. They make us feel good. And now you're engaging um, and growing as a person. That's what I would call healthy tech. Um, and that's good tech that actually um, helps us grow and learn. And in between those two, toxic and healthy, is what I call junk food tech, um, which is like junk food, a little bit won't kill you. But if it, that's all you're consuming, it will start to have. A negative impact. And junk food tech in this example would be, let's say, scrolling Instagram. You're just kind of scrolling it. You're not engaging. You're just kind of like eating a bag of chips. You're not even tasting it. It's just going in and it's very mindless. Um, that's why I would call it a junk food tech.
10: I think an important insight that we've, you know, unlocked as we worked with students, especially boys, the past three years is that you know, social media, you have to think of it as just it's how you're social through technology. Yeah. And that's especially yeah. important for boys because when you think of social media, you think of, you know, solely Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter. Uh, but for for boys, it, of course, and Every student, but especially boys, it extends beyond that. You know, it's how you're consuming YouTube videos, it's what you're you're texting, it's gaming and connecting in multi, you know, uh, kind of a multiplayer uh, game with people across the country, if not the world. And so, I think some of the challenges that you know boys, uh, particularly face, is you know, one is the the balance of technology in our lives, especially when it's your buddy who's encouraging you to play three more games a fortnight, <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to balance, you know, your schoolwork and other priorities. Um, it's the, uh, the the aggression, maybe the passive aggression that students face um, when it comes to bullying or being pressured to to do something because all of their, you know, all of their buddies are doing it. And the pressure, that social pressure that is amplified on technology.
6: So I think one of the biggest challenges is uh, not being able to see consequences that might be not happening tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's uh, I, I even feel that sometimes I'll open up my Facebook and I'll get a, this is what you were doing 10 years ago. And I think, goodness, did I put that on Facebook? <laughs> and what we're trying to get these children to do is to make very good decisions now when they are not yet developed enough to make those good decisions, you know, from an uh, emotional point of view, from an intellectual point of view, sometimes we're trying to get children to understand consequences, which can be quite far down the line. And, you know, I've been in the space long enough now to start seeing it, uh, where people have been photographed at a birthday party and those pictures come back to haunt them a few years down the line when they're trying to get jobs. So I think understanding the reputational harm when it's very far away uh, is a very tricky thing. Um, the internet just, it's, it's its all just so quick. You know, every person out there, as soon as you have a phone in your hands, uh, you have instant access to an international public permanent platform. And it's so, you know, it's such an obvious thing to say, but we almost need to just take a moment to think about how that's changed the whole game because... Fifteen years ago, journalists had that power, and now we are all publishers, and the legal consequences that come with that, the disciplinary consequences that come with that, and the impact to reputation uh, can be immense.
0: Go ahead and take a listen to the full episode. As I mentioned before, Shimmy, Laura, and Emma's advice is sage. In our final episode of 2019, we had the wonderful opportunity to connect with two member school headmasters, Shane Kidwell from St. Albans College in South Africa, and Anthony McCaliff from Brisbane Grammar School in Australia. We spoke with them about all sorts of boys' school-related issues, and the episode in which they feature is filled with gems of advice and insight for new teachers, seasoned professionals, and school leaders alike. It was a great way to herald in the holiday season. Here are some snippets of my conversations with Shane and Anthony.
16: An all-round education, I think, involves all of this. It involves making sure that you know relationships are key. Um, that uh, that boys realise that life is more no, is it, far greater than just the five years that they have at at school, and it's far greater than you know just playing the guitar or playing in the first team rugby. Or, you know, um, getting A to A's. You know, I think those things obviously matter and you want boys to do the best they possibly can. But I think they need to be able to find their element somehow. And I think this is something certainly I regret that I didn't find my element earlier in my life. And I suppose it's, it's my life's mission to make sure that boys figure that out, you know, in their journey here at school.
13: I really, we, we really have an interesting view about the capacity and enthusiasm for independence of learning. So there's a lot of work around self-regulatory behaviour, uh, particularly with the younger boys, so they're demonstrating those behaviours as they get older. Huge amount of work, uh, and I know it's, uh, it's a favourite of IBSC, around character education and what that looks like for boys in a modern world um, at Brisbane Grammar School in the 21st century, and then a very strong emphasis upon serving others. So we have a theme here that um, when they're younger, it's about leading self, but as they move into the senior school, it's very much about leading, um, leading others and serving others because that notion of altruism then goes to make them better citizens.
16: I do think there are some unique uh, challenges for, for men in, in, in the modern world. And I think, you know, that sort of stereotypical we've just been talking about, that stereotype of a man being strong and hard and, you know, courageous. And, and, and I think men have to be, you know, strong and courageous. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that men have to be, have to be vulnerable, have to be uh, or have to learn uh, to understand themselves and, and what makes them tick
13: one of the things we've set up recently is a a discussion group between a year 11 and year 12 boys with the girls next door around responding respectfully to Me Too and times up movements, Hmm. because what I've noticed in the boys is that they are respectful, but they don't know how to respond. And so what you're getting is a generation who are silent. So they know it's wrong to make impertinent comments, and they realise that they're, the, they're the ambassadors of their schools, they don't want to embarrass themselves either, so the default position has become silence. And I don't think that's a healthy space for boys or girls. Mm-hmm. And so helping them to construct the language where they can have a respectful dialogue with, um, with the girls, um, I think will be better for our society in the long run.
16: You're going to get nowhere until you've actually, boys trust you. And they see that you're human, and and that you are prepared to be vulnerable, and you are prepared to say sorry when you've made a mistake. Um, you you need to give boys a sense that they can build a relationship with you. The second thing is, I think that accountability is key and and critical. And I think in the modern age, it's sometimes we as as teachers in boys' schools, we we perhaps are a little scared to create the accountability and the structure. That we know is 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 important for them um, to thrive, because sometimes that's painful. You know, holding people accountable and speaking truth and and uh, you know using candor is 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 sometimes not not easy. But I think boys need to know where they stand with you. You need to call them out when you know when they've stepped over some boundaries. And you need to hold them accountable, whether it's homework not done or whether it's, you know, the way they're talking to somebody uh, or whatever, you know, or stepping out of line. And then perhaps thirdly, boys need to get a sense that you understand their uniqueness, each of them, that, uh, that you don't stereotype them and place them in groups, whatever that group might be. I think boys want to know that they are, are
13: seen. For us, we often talk about boys having um, a strong sense of bravado um, and quite often it's misdirected and usually it is it is a fabrication and beneath that bravado is just another vulnerable child and helping new people who are new to boys schools understand that um, never shame a boy in front of his peers is my number one piece of advice uh, if you're not happy with the behaviour, or you're not happy with the response, then a quiet conversation at the end of the lesson, where you assertively um, remind the boy of what the expectations are, will invariably lead to a better outcome. Um, the naming and shaming in front of his peers uh, will lead to, you know, I think, more difficult interactions between the staff members and the students.
0: Access the full conversation with Shane and Anthony on the most recent episode of IBSC Exploring Boys' Education. We're really enjoying this podcasting journey, and we trust that you, the listener, as teachers and leaders in boys' schools, are benefiting from them. We would love your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. We already have a number of exciting episodes lined up for 2020. Before signing off though, I'd like to give a quick shout out to The Stellar Effect. The Stellar Effect are a South African company who specialize in storytelling. They have played an integral part in our strategy development for this podcast and we are appreciative of the partnership we have with them. Thank you, Jason and Carol. You can check out more of their work at thestellareffect.com. We trust all of you will have a fantastic break. The IBSC office will be closed between December 18th and January 2nd. IBSC Exploring Boys Education will be back on the airwaves in January with the first of our teacher feature episodes in which we share with you how boys teachers from around the world are incorporating storytelling and the narrative into their pedagogy. See you all again in 2020.